Hi, everyone. Eric here. Very quickly before we get to our discussion today with Charlie Robertson from Renaissance Capital, I'd like to give you a quick heads up about everything Cobus and I are doing for China Africa Project subscribers. They're getting daily analysis on everything that's going on, ranging from Chinese infrastructure spending, human rights issues, debt relief, and of course, the uproar following what happened in Guangzhou. We also have some great contributors from around the world sharing their insights on all the key issues. It's all then packaged together neatly in a daily email newsletter that, well, if you're interested in this topic, it's absolutely indispensable. Try it out free for two weeks. See if you like it. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. It's half off for students and teachers. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, in many ways... Africa is facing a dual challenge with COVID-19. On the one hand, there's obviously this public health issue that is just enormous, but maybe more important is the burgeoning economic crisis, and debt is a key factor in all of this. So we're going to talk about debt relief today and what's going on uh, in a number of different areas, but we're going to focus on private creditor debt. Uh, But let's go back, I think, very importantly to March 24th. And that's when this whole discussion about debt relief in Africa really kicked off in earnest. Uh, That's when Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, he wrote a letter that he published on Twitter that was sent to the G20 right ahead of the G20 virtual summit. And uh, the opening line of that letter is very interesting. He said, COVID-19 poses an existential threat to the economies of African countries. And boy, he did not mince words there. Now, in that initial call-out, uh, Prime Minister Abayi, he then asked for all interest payments to government loans should be written off. He said debt for low-income countries should be written off. All other debts should be converted into long-term low-interest loans with a 10-year grace period. And all the debt payments will be limited to just 10% of the value of exports. Now, back in March, when we started seeing this, that all seemed reasonable, and it's interesting that, you know, a few days later, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, he then took that message from Prime Minister Abayi to the virtual summit and brought it to other leaders. Again, we were optimistic back in March that something would be done because the need was so pressing. Now, so when we look at the debt in Africa, we have to look at it at a lot of different levels. So there's really three main categories. First, there is the multilateral debt that's owed to organizations like the World Bank, the IMF, the AFDB, uh, and so many others of these groups like that. Then there's bilateral debt, and that's, of course, where the Chinese come in as Africa's single largest lender. Uh, and they have a, what's believed to be about 20% of all of Africa's external debt. And finally, there's the private sector debt, which is largely to bondholders, asset management firms, pensions, and a lot of private companies as well. So you put all of that together, 
And then I guess in some ways, it's not really surprising that two months after Prime Minister Abai's kind of alert and the, th- the warning of being an existential threat, we still haven't seen any meaningful action. Yes, the Paris Club has done a debt relief deal with Mali, and the IMF has done some type of debt relief deal with Somalia, but really, given the size of those two countries, uh, it's kind of small. Now, what's interesting is that African leaders are starting to express a little bit more frustration, but not a lot. We started to hear this again. There was a a conference with uh, four or five African, West African leaders, and they started saying there's not enough movement. It's not happening fast enough. But we got an interesting clue about some of the thinking that's going on. Uh, On Africa Day earlier this week, when the Ghanaian Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, sent out a statement uh, celebrating, uh, you know, Africa Day. And there was a line here, Kobus, that I'd like to get your take here. They said, with the benefit of immediate debt relief, and I'm quoting from their letter, developing countries could focus on protecting vulnerable populations, preserve jobs, and ultimately avert consequential political and social instability. Ghana supports the call for debt relief for African countries and a moratorium on the servicing of international loans, including private loans. So what was interesting there, Kobus, was that's the first time that I have seen an African government make the link between debt relief and political and social instability. I think, yeah, this is a really important link to make um, because in the first place, you know, any country that, that's going through lockdown, that, um, you know, that costs money. Um, in, in South Africa, um, you know, the, the government put a lot of money into trying to, um, to stop small and medium enterprises from simply going under and therefore then firing all of their workers. Um, so any any um, you know, attempt to to maintain a lockdown or to have a phased opening up is itself expensive. Um, and then the the more people are feeling under pressure, the more they're losing their jobs. The the more you're opening the 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 door to social unrest. Um, you, you know, kind of which would then in its you know the the more chaos there are in cities, the more the harder it is to control COVID nineteen. So it's you know I think these these African leaders are trying to avoid this kind of spiral effect. You know. Of one thing exacerbating another factor, um, you know, kind of simply because because people are running out of money in the cities. Well, they are, in fact, running out of money and treasuries are running out of money as well. The value of their currencies is going down. Inflation is going up in many parts of the continent. Nigeria is seeing some of its highest food prices in two or three years now. Uh, we're seeing foreign exchange reserves uh, being depleted as more and more governments are applying their reserves to pay for uh, public health programs. And so, but at the same time, there's really, as you said, Kobus, they're trying to preserve uh, kind of the status quo. And one of the things they're trying to preserve is their credit rating. And that's one of the key issues. Now, we heard about that in our discussion with Vera Songwei from a couple of weeks ago. And if you didn't hear that discussion, I highly recommend it because she talks about the imperative of preserving African credit ratings so that the cost of borrowing does not skyrocket in the future. Now, that may be very difficult to do, given that we've seen downgrades already from Moody's and Fitch in Ethiopia, Kenya, and South Africa, among other countries. There's a warning coming in Kenya as well. So these are uh, very precarious times. We're going to focus our discussion today on the private sector part, because in many ways, there's an assumption that the Chinese side, which we don't know anything about, is underway. And in that sense that the Chinese have said, we're going to work 
country by country on a bilateral basis. We're not hearing very much from African stakeholders that are complaining about this. So one has to assume that those discussions are underway. On the multilateral side, the IMF and the World Bank have been in the forefront of calling for debt relief. So there's not a lot of mystery as to what's happening there, even though they have had a difficult time extending their what's called the special drawing rights, which is access to more capital, and the $100 billion that the United Nations, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa and the African Union have called for. So, But those are underway. The process is a lot more transparent. What we're going to talk about today is the private sector side, and that's a lot more confusing for people. Now, back on May 14th, a group came out called the Africa Private Creditors Working Group. And they kind of threw water on the concept that there was going to be some kind of blanket debt relief and kind of what they they called a standstill on interest payments or a two-year holiday and a vacation on interest payments. They kind of threw water on that saying, we're not going to do a kind of blanket program for all of Africa. We're going to do what the Chinese are doing and go country by country. And so now this starts to raise the question as to whether or not a deal can be done to kind of resolve the private creditor debt, which in many countries like Kenya is 30, 35% of a country's debt. You know, a lot of African countries have taken on enormous amounts of, of, of euro bond debt and of private sector debt. And negotiating with all of these different entities is going to be extremely difficult. So we thought it would be great to get someone far smarter than us to comment on this. So we invited Charlie Robertson, who is the global chief economist and head of macro strategy at Renaissance Capital based in London. He's also one of the world's leading experts on emerging market finance with years of experience and a deep background, specifically in Africa. And so we thought, let's get his insights on this. And where are we right now with private creditor debt? Charlie Robertson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Uh, We really appreciate you being on the show for the first time. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks very much for the invitation. Let's just get right into it. African governments are in the process of renegotiating their debts with multilateral creditors like the World Bank and the IMF, bilateral lenders like the Chinese. And then, of course, there are private creditors, which is where someone like you comes in the picture. Those private creditors are made up of asset management firms, hedge funds, pensions, things like that. And they've come together to form this coalition called the Africa Private Creditor Working Group, where they say they're going to go country by country to negotiate debt relief deals. I don't think anything like this has ever been done before. So what do you think are the prospects for meaningful debt relief in Africa with bondholders and other private lenders? I think it's going to be very complicated. And I think it's also not the right tool to be using to address this public health crisis. Um, So I've got a a conceptual problem with this. Um, Countries with high debt, let's take Angola, for example, don't have a big coronavirus problem. Uh, They had their first local case, I think, as recently as the 28th of April in Angola. So they haven't got a health crisis, but they've got a debt crisis. So it's not clear to me why we're even talking about debt relief for countries which have got a health crisis um, and, and where debt relief is not particularly relevant. So, so which, which tool do you feel would be more appropriate? What would be appropriate would be for the West to be borrowing at um, extremely low costs. In Germany, they can borrow at negative rates. In the US, at sub 1%. Um, and lend that money at cost, i.e. close to zero, to those African countries or South Asian 
that need money now to address a health crisis now. Uh, it could be done in three days. It doesn't seem like there's the political will in places like Germany, London, the United States to do something like that, because otherwise it would be done, right? I think the political will is lacking in the United States. Um, the obvious next alternative, rather than just a big transfer of cash to cover the costs of lockdown and the costs of health expenditure, the next obvious move would be for the IMF to expand special drawing rights, which happened after the last global financial crisis, that again gives all countries access to more money um, very quickly. Uh, and again, the US has blocked this. So the mistake that's been made then is that the G20 has said, okay, the leadership that the US showed the world in 2009 is no longer there. Uh, what can we do? And, and they've, they've gone, they're fighting the last war. And this is a lot like in, in finance, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been fighting the last war. So, you know, if there was a housing crash in the States now, it's very unlikely that US banks would blow up because for the last 10 years, we've been concentrating on financial regulation. Uh, what we've not been doing is investing properly in healthcare provision for what was a quite predictable event, which was a global pandemic. That's been on my top five risks for the last five years in every presentation I've shown clients. I, I didn't expect a lockdown. That, to me, is the black swan event. But a global pandemic was not a surprise. We haven't prepared for it. And the French and others have gone back and said, OK, well, what's worked before? What was the last war? What was the last problem we had to deal with? Oh, yes, debt relief. That's what we did in 2004 and five. And I think conceptually then it was a very different space because the debt relief that sub-Sahara needed in the 2000s had been built up over decades by the private sector, by governments. Everyone had been lending too much to very risky credits um, at high interest rates. What's happened in the last few years is the private sector has been lending to uh, a number of countries in Africa that have not borrowed before at very low interest. Benin issued a Eurobond last year at under 6%. That's incredibly cheap. And if a country can grow at 6 or 7%, it actually means they grow out of their debt that they've borrowed. And if they invest it well, um, they, do, they make huge gains for their people, for their health sector, for their education through that borrowing, which was done very cheaply. So this idea of debt relief now is, is I think, a, a mix-up of, of countries saying, what on earth can we do, given the lack of leadership from the United States, um, and, and fastening on the idea of, of, of debt relief. So the first problem is that the concept is wrong, and they're using the wrong tools to address a public health crisis. There's a whole lot of other problematic issues with this too. And if I can go on. The second one, and which I think is particularly important, is that what, what global investors, the private sector, are being told now is that if they invest in the US, in the stock market in America, and buy shares in Google, they'll get bailed out. The Fed will come in and provide loads of cash and, and support you, and the stock market will be up so fast that, in fact, you won't even notice there's been a coronavirus if you look back over the last two years' worth of stock market performance. But if you make the mistake of lending to the countries that need it most to invest and grow faster, well, then you get penalized. Not, not, only do you not, not only do you not get bailed out, you actually get penalized. 
Uh, and that's what I find is, is conceptually the second big problem with this debt relief idea. It's, it's, it's kind of incredible. And if you want people to invest in Africa again in the next five to 10 years, and, and personally, I'm a huge supporter of, of people lending as cheaply as they possibly can um, to help those countries that need that investment, where there's a massive shortage of savings. But any investor looking ahead for the next 10 years is going to say, well, hold on. The next crisis that comes along, if I invest in Google, I get bailed out. But if I lend to, to African countries at 6 or 7%, I'm going to get penalized. So I can't afford to lend to them at 6 or 7% again. I'm going to have to lend at 8 or 9 or 10, at which point Africa is going to be set back in its growth for forever by, by this decision-making process. Well, you know, kind of to, picking up on that, you, one of one of the things that that I think a lot of African governments are worried about is the not only the 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 difficulties of of this debt relief process and whether it's a, it's a, the the right process to head down, but also the way that it's linked um, to credit um, rating, like credit downgrades um, by rating agencies. Um, like, how, what is your take on on the role of the rating agencies in this particular crisis? I think I think that's a distraction. Um, there's there's uh, some clever uh, academic types, debt restructuring types, who've worked out a way that they can get round the credit rating downgrade risk. Um, if if the governments continue to pay interest on the eurobond, but it goes into a special fund, and if the eurobond creditors, the people who've lent the money, agree, then that money can go back to the government. So it's not technically a default because they have paid the interest, but uh, they don't get downgraded. Um, I don't think that makes an awful lot of difference on a three to five year view. If I'm a, a fund manager, I still have to say that I have to take into account the risk that the next health crisis that comes along, it might not be a health crisis, but there will be new fresh calls for debt moratoria, and I'm going to lose six or 7% interest on that, that money that I've lent. So I just won't lend it again. It doesn't matter whether they defaulted or not. Technically, the point is, I will have got less money for it. So I will lend the money somewhere else. And Africa will be bereft of private sector lending for years. And for the last decade, all I've heard as I've walked around the continent, flown around the continent, is how much the private sector should be lending. Our infrastructure needs are maybe $100 billion a year of unmet infrastructure needs. And, and the private sector should be stepping up and lending. And they've just begun in the last few years. And now the G20 comes in and says, oh, well, now we'll penalize you. It's, it's, I, I find the whole thing quite incredible. What do you think of the idea that uh, Vera Songwe, who we spoke with a couple of weeks ago at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, together with the African Union, they're putting up this idea. They want to bundle together all of Africa's private creditor debt. They want to create something that I guess the best way I see it is almost like a collateralized debt obligation where they bundle this all together, collateralize it, then have it backed by a central bank or some type of AAA institution and then sell it back into the market. And uh, what do you think? Is that feasible? It's plausible. Sounds very complicated to me. Sounds, sounds like a, a very complicated way of getting around a problem at the U.S. Treasury. Uh, where they're not prepared to support IMF special drawing rights, which should be could be done in a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. 
And one of the reasons they're not, just just to be clear, that on the special drawing rights is they're concerned that the money will be used to pay Iran and China, specifically. That's one of the objections, I think, that's coming out of the U.S. on expanding SDRs. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, here we've got a, a virus which is global, which is getting everybody in every country, and where I think the chances of keeping it suppressed in the West will require a complete transport you know, breakdown, not just for, for, for two months, but for, for maybe a year or two years. I don't know how long it's going to take a, a vaccine to get into full mass production. So they, they're really suggesting that they're, they're not going to do I don't. I, I, I'm skeptical on the Iran issue as well. But but I think this is uh, this is this is not a very rational point of view. Um, and the, my point would be this: that okay, let's let's take it as given. Trump can't step up; he won't step up to do this. But there are others who can. Um, there's nothing to stop the UK, Germany, France, and and, and China potentially ought to really getting involved and doing something along these lines anyway of offering cheap financing. Uh, the, 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 the debt, this debt relief idea is, is a very complicated, slow way where you end up restricting investment for a decade ahead. And that is the problem with it. I mean, yes, it can be done, but should it be done at this stage? Um, and is it even the right policy tool? I, I'm, I'm not convinced it is. You mentioned, you know, the the, the danger of restricting, um, you know, financing to Africa for for a decade or more. Um, what is your? How worried are you about that scenario? Like, like, what is the the next ten years or the the 2020s looking like for you now? You know, in in the midst of the Corona crisis. I mean, the work we've done on viruses before um, has shown that they tend, the economies tend to bounce back. Uh, very, they get hit very hard. Uh, they bounce back very quickly. Um, and, and my assumption would be that within two years, uh, things could be very similar to the prospects that, that we had in, in 2019, say, um, and improving. But what the theme which is going to be an issue for Africa, much of Africa, not all of it, uh, in the 2020s is uh, the shortage of savings. Uh, the shortage of savings is a direct derivative of demographics, um, that when you have lots of kids, you don't have any savings. Um, bank deposit data show that. You get small banking systems with very little money to lend. So money becomes very valuable and, and, and tends to have a very high interest rate on that, that cost. And that's going to be a theme for much of Africa in the 2020s. But by 2030, it will have changed a great deal uh, in countries like Ghana. Ethiopia, Kenya, Egypt, they are going to have their, their demographics, their, the number of uh, children per woman down below three by 2030, the Uni United Nations projects. And the result of that is that their savings should increase significantly. And as a result, they won't need foreign borrowing in the same way uh, in the 2030s. So it's just there's just one decade, really, for those countries where, where they still need access, ideally to as cheap as possible foreign financing. Um, and, and that's what the Eurobond markets have been providing. And then, um, you know, if you look at specific African countries, which ones worry you and which ones do you feel okay about? The ones that worry me are the ones with the uh, highest fertility rate. Um, so countries like Zambia, where the number of children per woman is, is four to five, or Angola, where it's over five, 
Um, the difficulty these countries have is that they are going to be short of savings for two decades. So I'm saying that it'll change in Ghana and Egypt and Kenya and Ethiopia by 2030. But for Zambia, it won't. And for Angola and in Nigeria, it won't until the 2040s. Um, and, and that makes it, because this is quite a complex kind of idea for, for people, and it's not widely written about, um, I, I think it's many governments don't see that there's a link between these issues. And, and what all they see is that if they borrow now, perhaps they'll grow faster, and, and that won't probably happen. Um, in, in, in those countries. And what you've had in Zambia and Angola is, is excessive borrowing by the governments. Um, they, now, as I've said, they're not countries facing the biggest health crisis right now, but they are the governments that have borrowed arguably irresponsibly um, in, in the last few years. And, and they, you know, they would be beneficiaries of the debt relief issue here. Um, and, and they continue to worry me because they've had not the government, Angolan government right now, actually, but until two or three years ago when the Santos was in charge, you know, they just borrowed too much. Um, and that's certainly been the case with Zambia, where the president there has allowed the government to borrow too much. So there are definitely a few countries that are in trouble and, and have too much debt. And, and, you know, and, and actually, it wouldn't be a surprise if there is a debt, debt restructuring on those countries anyway. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Angola and Zambia, because Angola and Zambia borrowed excessively from China. And I'm just curious to get your take on what role you think China will play in all of this. We don't know much, so it's all speculation. But given what we do know, what are you thinking about in terms of China? That's a, I mean, I, I think that's an, a very important question, um, because I think my guess as to why the private sector uh, debt relief is getting talked about at all in this crisis is because of China's lending to Africa. So when China lends, it's not government to government, um, or at least it's not in the main. It's Chinese banks or Chinese companies lending, um, which are technically private sector, but that's not really the case. Um, I mean, they are, but but they aren't. I mean, they are doing this as a, a as an arm of, of Chinese foreign policy and, and development aims as well, and, and indeed export promotion. Now, when a Chinese bank lends to build a railway in Kenya or Ethiopia, that money then gets spent on Chinese construction companies using Chinese steel, even Chinese cement in Kenya, um, and, and, and then employs Chinese railway drivers to drive the Chinese-built engines on the Chinese railways, which have been built with Chinese money. So what's, what's happened in recent years is is China's lent a huge amount to Africa. You're quite right. Um, you know, maybe a fifth uh, of the debt for some countries now is China, but it's not technically government to government. So it doesn't get wrapped up in a let's help out Africa unless China can be persuaded that its banks and its construction companies, who it's effectively subsidized, this whole thing has been a big subsidy for the Chinese economy, that they take an interest rate holiday. And I think that's a much more uh, defensible um, argument to suggest that given actually the beneficiaries of this have been Chinese companies, you know, maybe they don't take the, uh, they don't get the interest on top of uh, the business that they've won from, from all of this. 
Um, so the, the banks, you know, there is a decent case to be said that maybe they should take a moratorium. But how do you get the Chinese to agree to that? Well, you have to talk about the private sector getting bailed in, including investors who don't get that second kind of benefit of, of Chinese construction companies getting jobs or, or making money on the back of all of this. So I think this is where this has come from. Um, so it's all about, I mean, I think a lot of this is about trying to get those Chinese banks and companies to to take an interest rate holiday. Um, and I, I, you know, that would be very helpful to see, particularly when some of those, some of that lending by Chinese banks has not been uh, effective lending. Um, the railway in Ethiopia has not produced uh, the returns that it was expected to. There hasn't been the amount of goods going along that railway as expected. So it hasn't been a profitable venture. Um, and, and therefore, I think there is a, a case to be made that, well, to some extent, China's benefited nonetheless from the lending, and perhaps they take a haircut on this, an interest rate holiday. If you were to advise um, African countries um, about about how they should run their affairs, and particularly around lending, um, in, into into the next few years, is there any kind of hidden opportunity here in this crisis that they can that that they can use where they can use the crisis to kind of improve what they you know what how they they do business, or is it simply a situation that Africa is just you know being hit by this kind of bolt from the blue, um, and will just have to recover? Well, I know what I'd be doing if I was a government trying to highlight the value that I that I think that the, the the advantages that Africa's got, which will be, I mean, I think it'll become more obvious in a couple of years. But I think we'll be able to look back at the growth rates um, of developed markets of Europe and America, which are going to get really you know, incredibly badly hit this year. Um, and we'll contrast them with with countries across Africa and say, actually, Africa wasn't hit quite so bad because the lockdowns won't have lasted so long and, and won't have hit the service economy so hard because the service economy is less important. Agriculture is still that much more important. And I think we'll look back and say, actually, Africa got through this uh, crisis with less of a hit to growth. And, and not just this crisis, but also the global financial crisis. So if investors are looking for countries that are a bit less sensitive, if you like, to, to, to global economic shocks. Africa already did well in the global financial crisis and is, could well do relatively well through this coronavirus. And I'd, I'd be marketing that. Um, I'd be marketing the fact that, you know, why did Africa get through so well? I think it, I think it will do relatively well because of youth. Um, and, and that's always you know, a, an advantage that, that the continent has, particularly sub-Sahara. In fact, particularly those countries I've talked about with the high fertility rate, countries like Nigeria, average age is about 18, um, Angola, Zambia, because of the, the youth, which means they have a, a lack of savings, but they do have the advantage of a, of a plentiful uh, labor supply. What a refreshing surprise to end on an optimistic, positive note. Uh, Charlie Robertson is the Global Chief Economist at Renaissance Capital, joining us from London. Charlie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule today. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Great questions. Thank you. Kobus, what a treat to have the opportunity to hear from Charlie about these issues because, I mean, he is really one of the best guys. In fact, when I went around looking for guests 
pretty much everybody said you got to talk to Charlie Robertson, and now I think you know why. So uh, we're looking forward to having Charlie back in a few weeks and months just to be able to kind of give us an update on where things are, because it doesn't really seem like there's consensus within the financial community as to what to do about this, even though they have this thing called the Africa Private Creditors Working Group, uh, which is supposed to unify the private sector kind of viewpoint on this. But uh, we haven't heard anything from them since the announcement back in May. And from what we're hearing from Charlie is that debt relief you know, across the board isn't the right solution to a lot of the problems they're facing. Because in, as he pointed out, in some places, uh, African countries are facing a public health crisis, like in South Africa, where there are tens of thousands of infections. And then in other countries, like say Angola, as he pointed out, uh, it's an economic crisis, it's a debt crisis. And so different solutions for different countries. Uh, let's now pivot very quickly uh, to the Chinese side. Because just like on the Africa Private Creditor Working Group, we haven't heard anything. We also haven't heard anything from the Chinese other than two key things. One, that they're going to work within the G20 system. And the G20 proposal for Africa does seem like it is breaking down a little bit. Kenya has backed out of this because it didn't want to forego the opportunity to borrow more money uh, because it's got budget deficits in the short term that it has to fill. And that's one of the requirements from the G20. So the Chinese said, okay, we're going to play with nice with the G20, a big accomplishment because we haven't seen that before. And then at the same time, they're going to go one by one bilaterally. What is your take right now on where we are with the Chinese? Because we haven't heard anything, but at the same time, we also haven't heard African governments and African stakeholders uh, getting antsy. And one would think that if there really was no communication going on with the treasuries, the finance ministries, and the president and prime minister's office in these various countries, that people would start leaking that to the press. And we haven't heard any murmurings about this. What's your take on right now where we are on the Chinese side of things? I mean, one has to say immediately that it's almost impossible to really say for sure. Um, from from what we from what we've seen, there seems to be, um, it, as as you say, there seems to be um, action behind the scenes. But it's going to be very interesting to see who's talking to who in the first place, um, and then what what the the kind of leeway is for for a kind of a solution to be to be um, thought up. I mean, what we already know is that that China tends to only cancel zero interest loans, um, not concessional loans, and zero interest loans only makes makes up a, a small number of their um, of their total debt. Um, so there's going to be a lot of negotiation that that would have to happen, and. And from from you know kind of a lot of people looking at this um, from the outside have been making the point that it's it's a lot um, there's a much bigger chance for rescheduling um, than cancellation. So you know kind of that's that's something to to kind of to, to start from. But I think then it raises a question about what kind of rescheduling are we looking at? What the kind of time frames would be? What the terms of the rescheduling would be? Um, and whether all of this and this is a point you've made before, like whether all of this is actually going to really actually play out at, at FOCAC next year. So I want to kind of give people a little bit of an insight. We don't know much. It's a black box in terms of what the Chinese are doing. But there is some some insights and some clues that we can pick up. And one of them comes from a researcher by the name of uh, Song Wei, and she writes a column in Global Times, and it she writes about African debt issues. And it's really the only piece of information that we have to go on. Uh, I recently did a breakdown of this for our newsletter subscribers, kind of analyzing some of her columns. Again, it's not a lot of information to go on. It really doesn't 
say much more than the kind of research we've been getting out of the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins or Yuan Sun at Brookings, but it's coming from a Chinese source, and that's interesting. So here's what she said. Uh, additional interest-free grants. So we might see more grant money, which is, again, that's the best kind of money because it doesn't have to be paid back. Um, here's what she said. She said, for countries facing extreme challenges, China may increase grants which do not need to be paid back among other supportive measures. Again, very vague. Uh, interestingly, and this goes counter to what you and I said on a previous podcast about Zimbabwe, she's suggesting that there might be more infrastructure spending. Here's what she said. China's support of projects concerning people's livelihoods, like constructing schools and hospitals, may be enhanced so as to speed up the resumption of production. So they might do targeted investments geared at generating economic activity. Uh, but again, what's the financing modus on that? We don't really know. And then the last point, which we all know, uh, cancel interest-free loans. Uh, so that is something that they've done in the past. It's relatively small. We still don't know about the huge amounts, $154 billion is the latest estimates of Chinese bilateral debt. Uh, last point, though, Kobus, is that I did an analysis earlier this week on Kenyan debt, and we kind of broke down where the, the debt is. And it turns out that Chinese debt is only about 10% of Kenya's total national debt. The other 32, 33% is from uh, multilateral lenders like the World Bank and the IMF, and then mostly the World Bank, and then private creditors. And it really goes to, if somebody could put this kind of information out, that would completely negate, for example, the debt trap fears. There's no way that China can entrap a country like Kenya with just 10%. Sure, it can take some strategic assets if that theory was played out, which we haven't seen any evidence that it will. But it's interesting that we should, I wish there was a way that we could look at what the percentages of Chinese debt are in each country and then be able to evaluate which countries are, are getting priority in the debt relief process and so forth. Uh, but it was very revealing and people seemed to respond very well to that breakdown in Kenya. You know, I think it's really important to to point out the complexity of this of this mix. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, Obviously, I agree with you that that the that the Chinese role in all of this is important, but should be put in context. You know, kind of it's 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 smaller than it's frequently shown to be. And then the interaction between these governments and private creditors, I think, need a lot more attention. Um, and you know, the, I don't think that there's nearly enough discussion of of that of that particular relationship um, in you know around the the kind of bigger debt issue. Um, and at the same time, you know, the the Chinese role in in all of this frequently becomes overstated, I think. Yeah, and that's been the point that I've been making on Twitter and LinkedIn when people are kind of saying, well, you know, be wary of China. They've got these ill intentions. Uh, you know, I'm not going to defend the Chinese, but I'm just going to say that I think people have to worry a lot more about what Wall Street and the city and the and Moody's and Fitch have to say. And they're going to, and this Africa Private Creditors Working Group is going to do, because getting them to, to be flexible is going to be a lot more difficult than getting the Chinese to be flexible. Uh, so that's just kind of based on our experience. Wow, this is a big, complex issue. We're going to keep looking at it because at the end of the day, I am of the contention that time is running out. This is like an hourglass that in the sand is falling through because every single day that goes by, these African countries, without a debt relief package in place, whatever those packages look like, are spending now money on interest payments to preserve their credit rating and at the same time, these massive new social costs while their economies are bottomed out and hold out because there's no revenue coming in. 
So this is not something that can go on for much longer like this. We've, we're already two months into the crisis and we haven't seen meaningful action. If this goes on another two or three months, it's hard to see through the end of the summer if, if, this, if this is sustainable. I mean, it just doesn't seem sustainable to me in the current format. But anyway, so that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us directly, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. Uh, it's always great to hear from you with your questions. You can also follow us on social media. We'll put those, uh, those links at the end of the show. And of course, they're in the show notes as well. And we'd love for you to to kind of take part in our daily discussion that Cobus and I are having uh, with our email newsletter that we send out to our subscribers. And we've got a great group of subscribers around the world who are following this issue very, very closely. Uh, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. If you're a student or a teacher, it's half off. And uh, we're really proud of that work. And we'd love for you to be a part of the community since you've made it all the way end to the end of the show. You'd probably be one of our loyal readers as well. Just give it a try. We'll give you two weeks for free just to see if you like it. And, uh, you know, hopefully you do. And if you have any questions, just let me know. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Uh, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.